You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world. Plus... Tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. There's a real Charlie Brown kicking a football sense to the book of Genesis, isn't there? God creates Adam and Eve, says, here you go, whole world. Everything's perfect. Just don't eat that one apple, all right? Then one of their kids straight up murders another one of their kids. And when God asks him about it, Cain gives what is, if you ask me, a real lippy response. Fine. No more farming for Cain. Everything's good. Two chapters later, and most of that two chapters is just begats, God looks down to see that the people are all banging angels and then giving birth to giants that are running around the countryside picking up cattle and eating them whole. Well, that's more than enough, says God, and he kills everybody but Noah and his family. Everything's fine. I mean, Noah turns to drink and starts nakedly cursing his grandchildren, but comparatively, the then short history of humanity is at roughly a high point. The humans develop baked bricks, and they develop asphalt, and God must have thought, well, that's all right, what kind of trouble can they get into with blacktop? And next thing you know, they're building a fucking tower to heaven. It's really just too much. In Josephus' telling, God was just about ready to flood everything again, but then he was like, ah, right, forgot about rainbows. So, rather than destroy humanity, he comes up with something clever. All the people in the world had moved to Shinar, look, that's what it says, and were busy building this city and this tower, which they were able to do because they all spoke the same language. So God put a stop to that. He confused their tongues so that they couldn't understand one another. And then he tossed everybody all over the place, Europe, Africa, Asia, even Milwaukee. And hey, just as a quick side note, it says something really fascinating about the Yahwehist that he figures people not understanding one another will make us less prone to sin and atrocity. But that's neither here nor there. I give you this very lightweight religious stand-up routine today because there's something else curious about the Tower of Babel. If God created all these different languages there at Babel to keep people from building tall stuff, then what was it like before that? The first verse of the Babel story reads, Now the whole world had one language and one common speech. So, what was that language? The first language. The universal, natural language. And this isn't just a biblical question. 
Nearly every culture seems to have held a belief in an original language, and plenty of secular linguists and historians have, or continue to, agree with them. There are, ironically, quite a lot of terms for this perfect language. The mother tongue, the Ursprach, the proto-human, proto-sapien, or proto-world language. In Jewish, Christian, and Muslim circles, it's sometimes called the Adamic language, as in Adam since it was assumed to be either the language invented by Adam when he named all the animals, or else, even more tantalizingly, the language spoken to Adam by God. The true word of God. I don't think I have to explain why that might be worth figuring out, or why lots of people might have motivated reason to conclude that their language was the real language. But... If you believed the true tongue was still out there being spoken, how could you know which one it was? How could you prove it? And if it wasn't still in use, how could you rediscover it? This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Over the last... 2,800-odd years or so, there have been dozens of attempts to find this original language, and boy howdy, they run a number of gamuts. From the genius to the insane, the theoretical to the practical, the hilarious to the horrifying, and all points between. So this is going to be the furthest thing from a complete history of the issue. Honestly, if you're interested in a complete history of the issue, good luck. If there is one, I haven't found it. The closest thing available for a general audience is Umberto Eco's The Search for the Perfect Language. And Echo, never a guy to be put off by the size of an endeavor, gives up on being comprehensive by the first page of the introduction. This subject was too much reading for Umberto Eco. I felt the same way about Foucault's pendulum, buddy. I don't mean it. I love Umberto Eco. So, this is going to be highlights of the history. We'll cover some of the baseline, ground-level thought through time, we'll take a look at a few of the really influential people on the topic, but mostly we're going to focus on the extremities, the most funny, fascinating, and fucking awful attempts at deriving the mother tongue. Today's episode, Babble On. Let's begin by getting a feel for some of the heavyweight contenders. Without question, the language most commonly considered by Christian, Muslim, and Jewish thinkers to be the Adamic language has been Hebrew. That is, after all, the language in which the book of Genesis itself was written. There are a lot of other reasons why Hebrew seemed like a good candidate, but I'll give you the other big one up front. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam named everything, the names he chose weren't arbitrary. They were, in some deep and difficult sense, the right names, if not the true names. In lots of little ways, Hebrew seemed to fit the bill. Beginning with some Kabbalist Jewish scholars in the Iberian Peninsula around 400 AD, lots and lots of people looked at the Hebrew language of the Torah and found relationships, some very plausible, some less plausible, and some downright far-fetched, between words, which seemed to attest to the greater significance of its vocabulary. 
Like, let's look at Adam and Eve. In the original Hebrew, the story of Adam and Eve contains a lot of wordplay that's lost in translation. And thank you, David Sedley, for helping me grapple with some of it. Here is the simple version. God sculpted Adam out of earth. But the Hebrew word for earth in that verse of Genesis is Adama. So, Adam's name isn't arbitrary. It relates directly to the ground from which he was made. There's a similar layered meaning, but much more complicated, with Eve. In the Torah, she is named Chava, which has the same root as the gerund living. In the New International Version, Genesis 3.20 reads, Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all living, which makes absolutely zero sense. But in the original Hebrew, it makes perfect sense, because her name pertains to life itself. By the early Middle Ages, Christians and Muslims were beginning to consider the question of an original language more seriously, Western European Christians particularly, since they were continually dividing into new nations and the languages of those nations were drifting further and further both from one another and from their mother Latin. By then, the Jewish world was way ahead, but everybody, aside from the Irish, foreshadowing, were coming to a similar conclusion. Hebrew was the original language. What that meant, precisely, varied from person to person and moment to moment, particularly the person and moment of Dante Alighieri, who does a wonderful job of illustrating nearly every possible conclusion. As one of the first vernacular poets in Europe, Dante thought a lot about language, and a lot of that thinking had to do with the original language, which Dante took to be Hebrew. But was the original Hebrew the Hebrew spoken now? Or had it changed? And if so, when? And where did it start? Between his essay specifically on the topic of language, on vernacular eloquence, and his divine comedy, Dante managed to stake out a lot of positions on the matter. First, the question of provenance. Dante managed to pinpoint three possible first speakers of the true tongue, and at various moments he defended each of them as correct. There was God, naturally, who first spoke to Adam. But did God really speak to Adam? Or did he communicate another way, maybe through a sort of telepathy, or by revealing his word through the elements, the winds and trees and the birds and such? And if that were the case, was the true language inspired by the elemental word of God in some way, not directly divine, but a motif of it? Next up was Adam, who named every living thing. But depending on what side of bed he rolled out of which day, Dante wasn't sure of whether Adam actually spoke these names aloud or somehow kept them to himself, maybe telepathically communicating them to God again. Eve spoke for sure. No question about that. She talked to the snake. But actually, the snake talked to her first. To Dante, that was both incontrovertible and unacceptable. The conversation between them was the first unambiguous oral communication ever, but it transpired between a serpent and, even worse, a woman. No, that couldn't be. So it had to be Adam. But was Adamic really Hebrew? Did Hebrew make it through the confusion at Babel unscathed? Or did it change somewhat? Most people who considered this question concluded that the Hebrew of their era must be different than the Hebrew of Adam, if only because the Hebrew they knew didn't appear to have the magical power that the true Hebrew ought to. That answer led to another question, though. Could that original Hebrew be retrieved? And if so, 
How? To many Jewish Kabbalists, like Abraham ben Samuel Abelafia, the answer was yes. Hebrew was retrievable, and the true language lived within the text of the Talmud, but wouldn't be fully decoded until the coming of the Messiah. For Christians, knowledge of Hebrew and the Torah wasn't critical for finding the true language. Of course it wasn't, because they didn't speak Hebrew. But there was a persuasive logic to the argument. There were so many languages out there, and each of them was essentially arbitrary, or what semioticians might call conventional. Words had no deeper relation to the things they described than that the speakers of those words agreed on their meaning. The original language, the Adamic language, the true Hebrew, was different. It had a direct and concrete relationship with the universe. The Adamic word for dog was the true name of dog. The Adamic word for God was the true name of God. Would they still be heteropalindromes in the universal tongue? Probably not, but who could say for sure? Anyway, the truth of the true Hebrew meant it should be detectable in the world through logical, scientific, or magical means. Honestly, I could spend the next hour talking about the various arguments made about Hebrew as the Ursprach over the centuries and still barely scratch the surface, and we'll definitely come back to them a few times down the line. But the real thrust of most of them come down to the notion that there was fundamental significance to the vocabulary and grammar of Hebrew, which came either from Adam applying true names to creation or from God speaking creation into creation. There was a similar argument to be made for Greek, since Greek grammar mirrored proper logic, according to Galen and fucking Aristotle, although neither had anything to say about an original language, thank God. And since, speaking of God, much of the New Testament was written in Greek. Nobody seems to have really believed that Latin was the divine language, even though the Catholic Church really wanted them to. Even Augustine had to admit that Latin was a suboptimal way to read scripture. But in the end, he defended the Latin Bible over the Hebrew Torah and Greek Gospels for two reasons. For one, he uh, didn't speak Hebrew or Greek, and neither did almost any Christian in Europe. But even if he did, he wasn't sure the Hebrew texts could be trusted. What if the Jews had purposefully changed or scrubbed prophecies in order to cover up that Jesus had been the Messiah? That is some very advanced anti-Semitism for such an early Christian, Augustine. Can we, like, divide Rome from Constantinople before we start formulating blood libels? Holy shit! Anyway, the advantage of Latin to the Catholic Church and to European high society writ large was that it wasn't universal. By the Dark Ages, only the educated could speak and read it, and that was perfectly as it should be. Catholicism was infamously wary of regular people reading the Bible for themselves, and I really only point that out because of the contrast there between the Pope and Martin Luther. The Protestant Reformation was in large part about giving scripture directly to the people. That meant translating the Latin Bible, the Vulgate, into all sorts of common vernaculars, like the King James Bible. Because Protestants believed that people should read the Bible for themselves any way they could. But, for many early Protestants, the best way to read the Bible, if they could manage it, would be to read it in its original formulation, which, for the Pentateuch, meant Hebrew. And so, after a few hundred years, the argument over Hebrew's primacy crashed right back into the debate hall like a scholarly Kool-Aid man. 
Around that time, a couple surprising competitors were being raised in Europe, Chinese and Ancient Egyptian, each of which were championed for similar reasons. Athanasius Kircher, yes, for the 10th time, the guy who nailed cats' tails to a keyboard to make a musical instrument out of them, gave due consideration both to Chinese and Egyptian, which he also claimed, quite incorrectly, to have decoded. The Chinese alphabet was pictographic and ideographic, which seemed to contain all kinds of inherent meanings that a phonetic alphabet, like Hebrew, just couldn't compete with. In 1699, John Webb published an historical essay endeavoring the probability that the language of the Empire of China is the primitive language, in which he argued that Noah's Ark had come aground in Asia and that his argot, the true Adamic tongue, had persevered there without the intervention of other corrupting populations. Ancient Egyptian was maybe even better. Hieroglyphs were undeniably meaningful, the signifiers way more attached to the signified even than in Hanzi. Also, it was clear to Kircher and most other Europeans that the Chinese and Egyptian languages were, like, old. Like, really, really old. Maybe even older than Hebrew. In his histories, Herodotus had claimed that Egyptian was thousands of years older even than Greek. But, according to Herodotus, there was at least one language older than Greek, Phrygian. The Phrygian language went extinct somewhere probably around the fall of the Roman Empire. But, actually, you know what? We'll get back to Phrygian down the line in two weeks or so. But don't forget, Phrygian. Speaking of age, there was one language that started vying for the crown around the same time as Hebrew. And it comes right out of left field. Gaelic. When Roman missionaries first came to Ireland from Britain in the 5th century, they brought the Latin alphabet, as well as a pretty mangled version of the Latin language, with them. Rome, Latin, and its alphabet had been storming across Western Europe with little resistance, but this time things were a little bit different. The empire was starting to crumble. Latin was beginning to mutate and divide into what would eventually become the Romance languages, and the Irish had a proud poetic tradition that they were not happy to jettison. For the first time in recorded European history, the local people made a defense of their own language and alphabet over the Roman one, and the key to that defense was the Tower of Babel. According to the defenders of the Irish language and its alphabet, the Oum, Gaelic wasn't just superior to Latin, it was the perfect language. The legend is written in a lot of forms, a lot of times, but the most to-the-point version is the Orakept na Nakesh, a 7th century history of the origin of Ireland with a particular focus on the Gaelic language. That language, the Orakept says, comes from Phineas Farset the king of Scythia, who along with Goidel Glass and 72 scholars, traveled to Shinar to study at Babel. But when they got there, God had just smacked the tower builders with his confusion stick, and everyone was standing about screaming new and different languages at one another. Phineas ordered his scholars to go about the huddled masses and study their words, and for the next 10 years, they did just that. They learned all the tongues and alphabets of humanity and even studied the construction of the tower. Then they put it all together, 
taking the best elements from each and every tongue to form another language, what we'd now call Gaelic. Listen, you Irish, I know that Gaelic is a bit of a simplification for what we're talking about here, and I know that I'm aligning a lot of details of Phineas and Goidel, but you're going to have to bear with me here. we got a lot of other stuff to cover. So, for simplicity's sake, Gaelic. Gaelic was definitely the best language, and the Oum a superior alphabet. But maybe it was even better. Maybe when God confused the speech of man, he split the best elements of the Adamic language among all the new ones. And so, when Phineas created Gaelic, he was actually recreating the original language, too. The main proof of this hypothesis offered in the Oricept is truly and extraordinarily difficult to grok. The Tower of Babel, it says, was built from nine materials. And those nine materials, clay, water, wool, blood, wood, lime, pitch, linen, and bitumen, represented the nine parts of the Adamic language. Noun, pronoun, verb, adverb, participle, conjunction, preposition, and interjection, which are the same elements of Gaelic. But aren't those elements common to most languages, you might be thinking? Or perhaps you're wondering how those nine materials symbolize the nine parts of language. But if you're really paying close attention, you might have noticed that there aren't nine parts of speech given. There are eight. Altogether, not very convincing, and the defense of Gaelic was at best a mixed success. By the time the Oricept was written, the Oum alphabet was well on its way out. Gaelic obviously persisted, but it shifted and splintered in all sorts of ways over the next few hundred years. Still, the groundwork for the Adamic language being Gaelic or some other Scythian-derived language was laid out for future folks to return to. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Relationships take work. A lot of us will drop anything to go help someone we care about. We'll go out of our way to treat other people well. But how often do we give ourselves the same treatment? This month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to take care of your most important relationship, the one you have with yourself. Whether it's hitting the gym, making time for your haircut, or even trying therapy, you are your greatest asset. So invest the time and effort into yourself like you do for other people. I think therapy and self-reflection are necessary pieces to a happy life. And so is a haircut every once in a while, I recently learned. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and constant listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash the constant. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant. You're successful in business because you love doing the research, whether it's the state of the market or the next right hire. But when you're low on hours and still want to do a great job on hiring, who do you go to for help? It's time for Indeed. If you're hiring, you need Indeed, because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements, or else you don't pay. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner 
that can help you do it all. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process. Find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus, you only pay for quality applications that meet your must-have requirements. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash The Constant. Offer valid through March 31st. Go to Indeed.com slash The Constant to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. Indeed.com slash The Constant. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Beginning around the turn of the 16th century, Europe became awash with potential original languages. Sure, most Christians thought that Hebrew had been the original language, but who was to say what Hebrew really was before Babel and before the Flood? Maybe Hebrew was, in actuality, a different European language. There was one tantalizing bit of scripture to meekly back this idea up. In Genesis 10.5, right before the Tower of Babel, Noah's son Japheth and his offspring settle the isles of the Gentiles, quote, everyone after his tongue, after their families, in their nations. This sure seems like a contradiction to the beginning of the Babel story, when everyone is in Sinar and everyone building a tower, and plenty of Europeans saw it as an opportunity. Maybe they were the sons of Japheth, or of Noah, and thus their language, the true one. Anio da Viterbo was a Dominican friar in the late 1400s who is best remembered now for his many elaborate lies and forgeries. He wrote a bunch of books and maps which he claimed were ancient classics, most of which extolled the virtue and prominence of the Etruscans, his ancestors. He even had a number of marble statues secretly buried in his hometown so that he could dig them up publicly. And he produced a treatise, bolstered by still more forgeries, in which he claimed that the Ark had landed in Etruria and Noah's family had been the first Etruscans. Throughout the 1500s, a number of prominent Italian scholars agreed with or expanded upon Anio's theory. At the same time, the Asturians of northwest Spain said that their tongue was descended directly from Tubal, son of Japheth, son of Noah, and for centuries the Asturian language was known alternatively as Babel. The physician Johann Garapius Bacanus argued that his very specific language, a dialect of Flemish spoken in Antwerp, was the real language, and he worked a lot harder to prove it than the Italians or Spanish did. Bacanus, also known as Gorp, which you know is what I'm going to call him from here on out, Gorp 
produced a detailed lineage showing how Japheth had spread to Germanic Europe and given rise to the Cimbri people. The Cimbri in turn became the Burgers, and the Burgers finally spawned the Brabantines, who founded Antwerp. That was just for starters. Gorp had plenty more proof than that. The perfect language, he said, should be the most elegant one, the language that conveys the most meaning in the smallest space. Which has a certain sense to it, but how does one quantify linguistic elegance? For Gorp, the answer was simple. What language had the most monosyllabic words? And wouldn't you know it, according to him, the answer was Antwerpian Brabantic Flemish. It gets better. To really seal the deal, Gorp needed evidence that all the other languages, especially Hebrew, originated with his Antwerpian Brabantic Flemish. And look, everybody who went down this road had tortured logic. If you look at both the Jewish and Christian Kabbalists trying to wrench extra meaning from Mishnaic Hebrew, it's like watching a supercut of a beautiful mind with only the unhinged scenes. It's the dictionary definition of apophenia, finding webs of significance in masses of arbitrary data. But even compared to the competition, Gorp was pretty zany. Like, remember before, when I said that Adam related to the Hebrew Adama, Earth, and Eve was life? Well, not according to Gorp. Adam, he said, actually came from the Brabantic Hothdam, which meant hate dam. Like a dam, D-A-M, that holds out hate. And Eve originated as Uvat, which roughly translates to a barrel from which people come. His particular brand of linguistic contortionism was so strained that Leibniz coined the verb goropiser after him, meaning to make bad etymologies. Nevertheless, Gorp's theory that Flemish was the true language was both popular and persistent. Among the Flemish, exclusively. Adolphe-Francois-Antoine-Joseph, the Baron of Rickholt and Mayor of Gratham, publicly wrote that it was true in the late 1860s. In the 1600s, the Swedish mathematician and poet George Stierheim answered Gorp with his own argument that the true language was, you guessed it, Swedish, and Sweden was happy to agree with him. Germans, unsurprisingly, believed the original tongue to be German because of its purity. I'm sure that idea will never come back to haunt the world. The radical Welsh philologist Roland Jones said it was Celtic. The Basques said it was Basque. The Catalans that it was Catalan. Bulgarian, Czech, Persian, Sanskrit, Arabic. Even the French made some timid attempts to put forth French as the Ursbrock, but nobody was willing to buy that. Basically, any language that anyone spoke might be the real one, and somebody probably argued for it. Not to mention the languages that nobody spoke, or which were being sussed out via logic and science. In 1629, some guy by the name of Des Valls apparently told Cardinal Richelieu that he had discovered a new language, a sort of omnilanguage, that he could use to understand anything in any other language in the world. He demanded of Richelieu a state pension to reveal his secret, and Richelieu, smelling a con, declined. But word of this supposed matrix language made its way to our buddy, Marine Mersenne, who then informed Descartes of the possibility. 
When they weren't talking about calculus or primes or the possibility of human flight, Descartes and Mersenne began a correspondence over the possibility of such a universal codex and how one might come up with such a thing. Eventually, they agreed that it was theoretically possible, but practically implausible. That didn't stop others from trying to logic out a universal language, though, including Francis Bacon, at least four separate Johns, Webster, Wilkins, Amos Comenius, and Locke. Even Rousseau tied with the idea of an a priori language, based in a logic so essential and simple that all humans would instantly recognize it. But enough about logic, enough about science, enough about philology and etymology and scholarship. What about the universal languages achieved through magic? Hildegard of Bingen started having visions when she was five or six years old. A sickly child, she was born sometime around 1098 in the Holy Roman Empire. She was the youngest child of a lower noble family, with somewhere between seven and ten older siblings. Maybe because of all the other mouths to feed, or because she was so weak and frail, or because of her hallucinatory visions, her parents sent her off to a Benedictine monastery when she was just eight years old. Over the years, the number of girls and women there at the monastery ballooned, and eventually Hildegard was put in charge of them. She asked that they be given a convent of their own, but the abbot was wary of the move and denied the request. But ultimately, he had to acquiesce, because Hildegard took ill, becoming entirely bedridden. She said her sickness was due to God's command for the convent being unmet. So a convent there was. This was part and parcel with Hildegard's character arc. She had been sick since childhood and continued to degrade throughout most of her life. And she knew why. God had instructed her to share her visions, but she was too humble to do so. And so he made her sicker and sicker until finally she relented. She began to write and draw and her illness abated. From then on, she catalogued her visions prodigiously. She wrote dozens upon dozens of songs, liturgies, musical morality plays, and chants like this one. She wrote about medicine, like how and when to bleed a sick patient, what herbs to eat, and what phases of the moon to look out for. She wrote books of her visions, describing personally the Garden of Eden, the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the mingling of the body and soul. She gave one of the first descriptions and first first-hand descriptions of purgatory and a truly hallucinogenic telling of the Gospel of John. All of this made Hildegard a much-revered figure. She was one of very few women in medieval Christianity who was allowed and encouraged to think, write, and talk about theology. Hell, not just encouraged, she was listened to. Pope Eugenius III read her entire work and personally blessed her when he was done. She toured around Germany, publicly preaching to the masses with the church's approval. She was pen pals with Emperor Frederick I. When she died, the sisters at the monastery said streaks of light appeared in the sky and above the abbey crucifix. She became one of the first people to undergo official canonization and beatification from the Catholic Church. And then they discovered her language. It's not known who, if anyone, Hildegard shared her secret tongue with in her lifetime, but among her many private writings was a glossary 
of 1,011 words written in an otherwise unknown alphabet. Some historians have conjectured that Hildegard's lingua ignata, or unknown language, was meant to be shared with her fellow nuns to build fellowship, or that she meant to use it to share secrets with some of the many people to whom she corresponded. But then why did she never share with either group? Personally, I feel there's a pretty good chance that Hildegard of Bingen's lingua ignata was the product of one of her many, many visions, and that she understood it to be the Adamic language. The biggest clue? Of the 1,011 words in her glossary, almost all of them are nouns. Names for things. Maybe the true names of things. Sure, most people seem to have assumed that the language of Eden was some still-spoken tongue, probably Hebrew, but maybe literally any other. Some felt that the true language could be worked out through rational inquiry, either searching through scripture or observing the very nature of things, but there was a third possibility, that the divine language could be given to mankind by some external force. God, the angels, even the birds of the sky. This was even more of a different path to truth than it might at first seem. The versions we talked about in Act 1 tended not just to be thought of as perfect languages or first, but as universal. Everyone ought to be able to understand the words of Adam, either at first blush or with a very small amount of effort, and once it was properly discovered, everyone in the whole world soon would. But the holy languages derived through holy means tended to be more elitist, more exclusionary, and more secretive. Let's start with the birds. From Greek mythology on, there was a fairly prevalent understanding that birds possessed the secrets of the gods, and that those who could understand the meaning behind their songs would possess great wisdom. Tiresias, the blind prophet who ineffectively warned Oedipus not to go looking for who killed the king, spoiler, Oedipus did, and the king was his dad, and his wife was his mom, was understood to have received his gift by communing with the birds, which he was able to do because he killed a couple of snakes, since snakes were understood to be born from the innards of birds. See last year's episode Something from Nothing, if that sounds baffling. Pliny attributes the wisdom of a great many Greek wise men to their ability to speak the language of birds, including Aesop, Democritus, and Anaximander. Not to mention Romulus and Remus, who were said to have determined where to form the city of Rome by consulting the movements and songs of the birds. This specific brand of divination was known in Latin as augury, or auspex, meaning observer of birds, from which we get the word auspice. In the Jerusalem Talmud, both King David and King Solomon are said to have received their wisdom from listening to the birds. St. Francis of Assisi famously delivered sermons to birds. Obviously, the gift was a rare one and not to be shared with the masses. The language of the birds was considered a secret piece of knowledge only for the initiated. So secret that the very phrase, the language of the birds, became itself a secret cant used by French troubadours, much like Cockney rhyming slang. That view of the first language being not just perfect, but magical, and only for the select, went way farther than the birds. In 1614, a booklet began circulating around Europe, 
It claimed that there was a secret society of mystical intellectuals whose goal was full and complete knowledge of the world. They were called the Rosicrucians, and they were looking for help. It was going to be hard for them to find it since they wouldn't give their names. In fact, they said that if anyone ever asked about it, they'd deny all knowledge of the order, like a Renaissance fight club. A couple more letters from the Rosicrucians popped over the next few years, and they caused quite a stir. The Jesuits declared the Rosicrucians to be an enemy, even while some other Catholic sects claimed that the Jesuits were the Rosicrucians. Intellectuals across Europe sought out the Rosicrucians, including, allegedly, Descartes. But if any of them ever found the order, they denied it. Just like they would. We could do a whole episode on the Rosicrucians for sure. Or someone else could for once. But the key things to say about the Rosicrucians is that they probably didn't exist. Probably. At least not when the first letters were published. It seems likely they were a hoax or a prank or even wishful thinking, especially since those original letters made some pretty audacious claims. Like, for instance, in the second such letter, the Confessio Fraternitatis, it was claimed that the four fathers of the Rosicrucians had developed a magical language derived from the true nature of heaven and earth and perfectly recreating the original tongue of God, Adam, and Enoch. While the letters may have been bullshit, they didn't come from nothing. They were written clearly by a person or people with a wide pool of knowledge. The description of their secret perfect language, for instance, pulls from a lot of different sources. Paracelsus, who had said that you could find the true names of things by observing them, because, quote, nature has created nothing that failed to manifest its internal qualities through external signs. The author of the Rosicrucian letters seems to have been influenced by Jacob Bohm, a Lutheran mystic who expanded upon this idea of signs and signatures, the notion that God formed plants and animals into shapes and colors that gave hints of their usefulness. Toothwort looked kind of like a tooth, so you could use it for dentistry, and eyebright looked kind of like an eye, so you could use it for optometry. Bohm thought it went much deeper that there was a spiritual signature behind the whole of nature that, through contemplation, led to the essential, sensual language of Adam. But above all others, these Rosicrucians were clearly influenced by one particularly famous and infamous predecessor. And it showed because the Confessio said the secret language wasn't just the tongue of God and Adam, but of Enoch. Oh man, I feel like I've been sitting at a bar for 10 years waiting for someone to ask me about my hat. I've been wanting to talk about Enoch forever. He is, plant my flag down on this one right here, the most fascinating character in the entire Torah, Bible, Quran, you name it. And yet, he appears in the middle of perhaps the most boring part of Abrahamic scripture you could possibly find, the Blessed Begats. Genesis chapter 5, boy, we are spending a lot of time in Genesis this week, begins, this is the written account of Adam's family line. And then it delivers. There's a big, long genealogical list that takes the book from Adam to Noah. Adam begets Seth, begets Enosh, begets Kenan, begets Mahalalel, begets Jared, and so on and so forth. If anything stands out about the blessed begats, it's typically the lengths of time. Adam, for instance, is said to have fathered Seth when he was 130 and then to have lived on another 800 years after that. 
Seth dies at the ripe old age of 912, Enosh 905, Lamech 777, and Methuselah dies after a grand total of 969 nice years. Buried inside all those long lives and late sirings is Enoch, who, quote, lived a total of 365 years. Not very impressive, given the field, but wait, there's more. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more, because God took him away. Say what? God took him away? No, that's not a euphemism. The Yahwehist isn't winkingly claiming that Enoch crossed over the rainbow bridge. In the letter to the Hebrews, the author, traditionally thought to be Paul, says, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. What the hell happened to Enoch? The Torah, the Bible, and the Quran are all woefully quiet about it. But there's got to be something big here, right? In all the Christian Bible, Enoch is one of three people in history to not die. The other two are the prophet Elijah and Jesus Christ himself. Given that rarefied company, doesn't it seem like Enoch deserves more than three vague sentences? Well, he's got more. Enoch's story, or stories, are told in a number of Christian, Jewish, and Muslim apocrypha, hidden, non-canonical holy books, and he's a prominent figure in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Depending on which version you go to, Enoch was either a holy and righteous hermit, a holy and righteous king, or a holy and righteous wise man. Most accounts have God rewarding his goodness by bringing him to heaven, but sometimes it's the fallen angels who send Enoch to meet with God to try to convince him not to flood the earth. He fails, it's tough to argue with God, but even in this version, God is impressed by his wisdom and goodness and sweeps him up to heaven to join the angels. It's at this point that Enoch is changed into his final form, the Metatron, aka the voice of God. So sure, maybe Noah spoke the true language, and maybe his kids did, maybe one of the peoples coming out of Babel did, the Hebrews, the Gaelics, maybe even the Dutch, but if you had to choose one guy, one guy out of all the guys who spoke the language of God, it was the Metatron himself, Enoch. This idea couldn't be tracked back to any one person. It was fairly common among Christian and Jewish mystics, but there was one person who was more devoted than anyone else to the notion that Enoch spoke the divine language and the primary inspiration for the Rosicrucian letters. The man, the legend, John D. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. 
We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Constant is brought to you by University of California, Irvine Division of Continuing Education. Today's economy is highly competitive, and UCI-DCE can prepare you to stand out. And if you're like me, nothing makes you feel better and more excited than learning something new. UCI-DCE has been serving lifelong learning and skills development needs for the local, regional, and global community for over 50 years. They offer over 80 career-focused programs in business, leadership, tech, education, engineering, health sciences, law, finance, and more. Courses are offered on a quarterly basis, and non-formal application is required to enroll. Learn from instructors who are practicing professionals with extensive relevant industry experience and gain practical skills that can be applied immediately on the job. At UCI-DCE, enrollment is open to everyone. Go to ce.edu slash learn now to learn now. Again, that's ce.uci.edu slash learn now or follow the link in the show notes. Aha, you know what that sound means. It's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big businesses, so upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. Scaling your business is a journey of endless possibility, and I love how Shopify has the tools and resources that make it easy for any business to succeed, from down the street to around the globe. Shopify powers millions of businesses, from first sale to full scale. Reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps. Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. Gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting on conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash the constant, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash the constant right now. Shopify.com slash the constant. If you already know about John D, then you're probably excited just to hear somebody say his name. I know I would be. We could all stand to talk about John D some more, don't you think? If you don't think, then you probably don't know about John D, in which case you are in for a treat. Can you tell I'm getting a little excited? A little too excited, maybe even? I know, I've got to take a little breath and recenter, frankly. Okay, ready? John D was the court astronomer to Queen Elizabeth. No? Nothing? Okay, well, let me put it this way. John Dee was Queen Elizabeth's royal wizard. Oh, now you're listening? Good. Let's go from the beginning.
John Dee was the son of Roland Dee, an official silkmaker to King Henry VIII. Roland became a regular part of Henry's court, which meant that young John was afforded a fine education. In 1546, Henry founded Trinity College at Cambridge, and John, having just earned his bachelor's, was admitted in Trinity's first class. Dee was good at pretty much everything. Languages, math, astronomy, alchemy. A real tryhard. But it was during his second year at Trinity that he really distinguished himself. As a sorcerer. He was helping stage a college production of Aristophanes' Peace. The first scene of Peace is very much something out of our What Goes Up series. It opens with two slaves carting big clumps of dough back and forth from the house to the stable, a strange chore made stranger by the revelation that it's not dough at all, but shit. They're building a big pile of doo-doo in the stable to feed a giant dung beetle that their master, the protagonist Trigaeus, is planning on using to fly up to see the gods in order to convince them to end the Peloponnesian War. His slaves think he's crazy, but the biggest reveal of the scene, bigger even than the shit pile, is that it works. Trigaeus mounts the enormous beetle and takes off into the air. It is a very difficult stage direction to pull off, but somehow John Dee did. Before the Cambridge crowd, the beetle ascended with its rider. No one could figure out how he did it, and John Dee doesn't seem to have been interested in explaining himself, which left the people of Cambridge to naturally conclude the effect had been achieved through magic. After graduating from Trinity, John Dee made for the continent, studying at Leuven and in Paris, buying books, and meeting up with several of the era's top minds in the Republic of Letters, particularly two of our old pals, Gerardus Mercator and Gemma Frisius. Through Mercator and Frisius, two of the earliest thinkers to seriously consider the longitude problem, which we have also covered in exhaustive detail in Long Story Short, Dee learned about navigation, a subject which England was very far behind on at the time. The Tudors ruled the country, and they were generally suspicious of things mathematical as being sorcery. So, for the most part, English sailors were entirely untrained in how to locate their latitude or estimate their course. Instead, they devoted themselves to the art of pilotage, which meant staying in sight of shore whenever possible and keeping track of all landmarks you went by. When Dee returned to England, he brought books, charts, and instruments by which he hoped to train the English Navy to sail by. Good idea. And to build a perpetual motion machine. Bad idea. I think those twin hopes are really important for understanding John Dee, and John Dee is really important for understanding the 1500s. Even more than usual, it was an era during which magic and science, philosophy and the occult, intermingled and were almost indistinguishable from one another. And John Dee's legacy has been shaped by that protean mingling, sometimes celebrated as a great scientist, other times derided as a kook, when really, there's nothing to say a person can't be both. John Dee was, without a doubt, a brilliant scientist, but he was a superlative kook. And you'll soon see why. When Dee returned to England, he tried to curry favor with the Duke of Northumberland, John Dudley. It was the wrong horse to back. Dudley was running the government on behalf of the 15-year-old King Edward VI when the boy king fell ill. 
Edward named his sisters, Mary and Elizabeth, as illegitimate and altered his will so that his crown would fall to Lady Jane Grey, another teenager whom Dudley would control, not to mention his daughter-in-law. It's widely believed that Dudley orchestrated the appointment of Jane Grey, who ruled as Queen of England, for a grand total of nine days before Edward's elder sister Mary, i.e. Bloody Mary, turned the Privy Council to her side. Both Jane and John Dudley were arrested and executed, and John Dee slinked away to quietly teach math in London. He again raised attention when word got out that he'd been secretly taking horoscopes of the royal family, including making a star chart for Queen Mary herself, an accusation that carried the charge of treason and threatened John Dee with execution. He was brought before the Star Chamber, where he didn't just defend himself, he elevated himself. Soon after the trial, Archbishop Edmund Bonner took on Dee as his personal chaplain. That was as far as he'd get, though, as long as the Catholic Queen Mary was in control of England and publicly burning religious dissenters and mystics like Dee at the stake. Luckily for him, she died, possibly from ovarian cancer, in 1558, and Queen Elizabeth I succeeded her. John Dee flourished under Elizabeth. The popular belief is that she trusted him and his magic so much that she asked him to choose a date for her coronation that would be astrologically favorable. She listened to him, to some degree at least, on the subject of navigation, and through his work on the subject, the English began sailing the open seas and to the New World. It was the very beginning of the British Empire, a term that John Dee personally coined. While Mary was still queen, Dee had attempted to encourage the crown to found a great national library, but Mary had been uninterested. So Dee started building one of his own, a personal library larger than any other collection in Britain, at his home in Mortlake. In the 1560s, he began writing books of his own, including his first foray into a universal language. In 1564, Dee published the Hieroglyphic Monad, it was a lengthy explanation of a new symbol or glyph he had invented, and which he believed to be a special sort of magical. Dee's glyph looks like a stick figure cyclops with horns on its head and boobs for feet. But in the monad, he said that the simple figure was an elegant encapsulation of the heavens, the elements, geometry, and more. Honestly, a lot of what Dee wrote about the glyph doesn't add up. Either he meant to keep some elements of his glyph secret, or the book was made as an opening volley on further work that never got made, or else Dee's esoteric imagination is just too removed from modern understanding to make sense of. But it's clear that he believed this symbol was either the truth or the way to the truth. And wouldn't you know, his glyph would eventually be referenced by the so-called Rosicrucians. But his symbol left him wanting. It was magically powerful, he was sure, but didn't have the full might of the Ursprach, the divine language he was looking for. His other enterprises were similarly coming up short. His attempts at landing English colonies in the Americas were underwhelming, and his alchemical work had so far failed to supply Queen Elizabeth with an unlimited supply of gold. He began to fall out of favor with her court, and turned more explicitly to the thing that had gotten him his initial attention at Trinity. Sorcery. He 
He spent more and more of his time with a black obsidian mirror and a crystal ball, attempting to make contact with the angels, but couldn't seem to raise them. What he needed was an intermediary, a spirit medium through whom the angels could speak. After a couple of years of unsuccessful tryouts, he found someone who would work, Edward Talbot. What made the 25-year-old Edward Talbot such an adept medium? Was it his youth and beauty? Was it his ancestry, tracing back to one of the highest and most ancient of the Irish high houses? Was it his knowledge of alchemy? Perhaps it was his hat, which he wore at almost all times. Or was it that he was a con man, actually named Edward Kelly, going by the name Talbot to avoid his already troublesome history, which included having his ears cut off as punishment for counterfeiting money, which makes some sense out of that constant hat wearing now that you mention it. Whatever the case may be, Edward Kelly, forget Talbot, was just who John Dee was looking for. He wrote a prayer to God in his journals before they began, saying that he had been searching since he was a child for pure and sound wisdom and understanding of God's truths, natural and artificial. He knew the angels were out there, trying to make contact with him. Yet in all his years of magic and science and math and meditation, he'd failed to reach them. Edward proved a keen go-between. In 1582, the two began calling on angels together. Dee had a room prepared in his house, the windows blacked over, in which he and Kelly could pray before the black mirror and crystal ball. Dee would ask God to send his angels to them. But no matter how pious and pure, how honest and true, the angels refused to appear before Dee. Curiously, however, they were more than happy to meet with the earless counterfeiter Edward Kelly. From the very first time they sat together, Kelly said he could see the angels in the mirror and hear their voices. They came to him day after day and night after night. The archangels Michael and Gabriel, Raphael and Uriel, lesser angels too, with names like Nalvaj and Ilempsi, not to mention a more mysterious, frequently naked female angel by the name of Madimi. Keep that one in your active memory, please. To say John Dee was thrilled by this development would be a gargantuan understatement. The lines of communication, communion even, had been opened, and he wanted nothing other than to thumb them. He demanded Kelly call on the angels every day. They would sit for hours, listening, talking, and transcribing. John Dee, one of the polyest of polymaths in the entire 16th century, who had mastered calculus and algebra, navigation and oriental languages, philosophy and alchemy, was now a singularly obsessed monomath. He would think of nothing but the angels and do nothing that didn't further his knowledge of them. And he asked the same dedication of Edward Kelly. But Kelly didn't want to spend every waking moment communing with angels. He was more interested in alchemy. Frankly, so was everyone else. Queen Elizabeth needed gold, not angel talk, and Dee's compulsive fascination with the latter did nothing to get him back in her good graces. Kelly tried persistently to re-broaden Dee's interests. A year into his employment, he told Dee that an ethereal creature had led him to a mysterious red powder which could transmute lead into gold. The ultimate goal of alchemy, not to mention the most direct get-rich-quick scheme in the world. But what did John Dee care about gold? He was on the brink of discovering the Adamic tongue, the true Hebrew, the language of God. 
With it, he would have knowledge of the true names of the angels, who he could then compel to do anything. He could heal the rift between the Protestants and the Catholics. No, better, he could heal the much older rift between the Catholics and the Orthodox. Nah, that's still small potatoes. With the angelic language, he could reveal the gospel of Christ to all the world. Heathens, pagans, Hindus, Muslims, Jews, the whole kitten caboodle, humanity would go without illness or strife, the panacea, world peace, comfort, and paradise. Not to mention that he, John Dee, would finally achieve his modest goal of knowing everything. Who gives a shit about gold? No, they would continue to dedicate themselves to calling on angels. Nothing more, nothing less. And they did. In March of 1583, Kelly told Dee he was having a vision and sketched down what he said was the angelic alphabet, 21 ornate characters, and a key that showed their English equivalents. Days later, Kelly entered a deep, long trance, during which he transcribed an enormous book of figures, which Dee called the Liber Loagaith, or Book of God Speak. It was 49 pages long, with 49 lines running 49 characters on each page. Presumably, it had to do with the hierarchy of the angels, but there was a hitch. This book used a different alphabet than the one Kelly had written before, one that was the true language, last spoken by Enoch. And the angels, he said, refused to translate it. The exact motivations and rapport between Kelly and Dee is difficult to make out. Contemporary witnesses thought their relationship was contentious, and it's clear that Dee's wife, Jane Fromond, disliked and distrusted her husband's partner, which you should keep in mind along with Medimi, the naked angel. Whether or not Kelly believed in his angels or in any of the other things he purported to do, like transmuting gold, is also tough to parse. But John Dee certainly believed. And almost as certainly, Edward Kelly was getting tired of humoring him. John and Edward weren't making any money with their angel conjuring, and it sure seems to me that Edward wanted to move on to something more profitable. After a year and change of doing nothing but talking to angels, they were really on the ropes. The queen and her court were uninterested and unimpressed by John's hobby. Even he knew that they needed some kind of support. At that time, there was a Polish prince by the name of Ulbricht Lasky, who was also falling out of favor with Elizabeth. Why he had come to England in the first place is a bit mysterious. Some thought he had fled Poland after an unsuccessful coup attempt, while others thought he'd been sent by Poland to try to chip away English support for Ivan the Terrible in Russia. Whatever the case, Lasky had a lot in common with Dee and Kelly, namely an interest in alchemy and a need to get away from Queen Elizabeth pretty quickly. So Lasky told them to come along with him back to Poland. The king there, Stefan I, was more amenable to Dee's goals, Lasky said, and might pay him and Kelly to do their angel routine. Off they went to Krakow, where Dee and Kelly found that King Stefan also saw no point in supporting them. That left them to wander around Europe, from royal court to royal court, searching out a monarch who might take pity on them. But none would. Not only were the European royals uninterested in Dee's angelic proposal, they were also concerned that he wasn't on the level, that he was actually sent as a spy for Queen Elizabeth. Which is quite possibly true. All the while, Dee insisted that they keep asking the angels for more wisdom. 
It'll surprise you to hear that I'm of the opinion that Kelly was a fraud and only wanted to give Dee whatever it would take for him to get over his obsession so they could start on some new con to bilk their way onto a royal court somewhere. But until Kelly stumbled upon the actual language of Adam and granted Dee full knowledge of the universe, that was never going to happen. Dee wanted a key for understanding the Liber Loagaith, which Kelly would never be able to provide because the Liber Loagaith was gibberish. Meaningless scribbles. In Krakow, he produced another book-sized bunch of blather for D. this one called the Claves Angelicae, or Angelic Keys. They were supposed to make sense of the Loagaith, but since there was no sense to be made, the Claves instead was made up of droning, semi-poetical platitudes from the angels about what the Loagaith would do, or mean, or say, when it was eventually decoded. All this did was increase Dee's need to get the real key and increase his demands on Kelly. What happened next is... uh, it's complicated. Actually, what happened is pretty straightforward. It's the why that's in question. In 1587, Dee, Kelly, and their wives were all living in Bohemian Trabon, hoping to get the support of Emperor Rudolf II. Unlike most of the nobles they'd gone begging to, Rudolf seemed interested. Not in the angels, though. He was interested in alchemy, in the Philosopher's Stone, in transmuting lead into gold, which Kelly said he could do. But, of course, D would not allow it. They had a bigger mission and couldn't be distracted from it, even as their poverty became more and more alarming. A lot of people believe that Kelly's last message from the angels was invented specifically to break up the partnership so that Kelly would be free to seek Rudolph's patronage. You see, one day in Trabon, Kelly told Dee that that conspicuous naked female angel, Medimi, had appeared and told him that in order to deepen their communion with the angels and finally get access to the original language, they would have to cross-match, as Kelly put it. Have a little couple's communion, if you get my meaning. Drop their claves angelicae in the old fishbowl, if you catch my drift. They had to fuck each other's wives. Again, did Kelly actually want to live out a 16th century bohemian adaptation of the ice storm? Or was this just an attempt to get Dee to call the whole thing off? Or maybe a bit of both? We don't know how difficult it was to convince Dee to go along with the plan, after all. We do know how hard it was for Jane... When Dee told her what was to be done, she fought him and hard, and eventually, quote, fell a weeping and trembling for a quarter of an hour. But eventually she acquiesced. Nine months later, she gave birth to a son, Theodore. John Dee raised Theodore as his own, and nobody ever said anything to the contrary until well after their deaths, when John Dee's diaries were discovered. But in secret, John and Jane must have always wondered... By then, they were no longer associated with Edward Kelly. Like so many fun-loving swingers, their friendship fell apart almost exactly after the coitus. John never asked Edward to talk to the angels again. He and Jane returned to England, where they found that their home and its library had been ransacked in their absence. He was able to convince Elizabeth to give him a posting at Christ's College in Manchester. 
Edward Kelly stayed behind in Bohemia, where he earned King Rudolf's patronage on the promise that he could produce gold. Unfortunately, he couldn't, and Rudolf had Edward Kelly thrown into the dungeon, where he poisoned himself in 1598. In 1605, both Jane and Elizabeth died, and the queen was succeeded by King James I, who'd made quite a name for himself burning wizards and witches in Scotland. He cut off all support to Dee. For the last four years of his life, John Dee, who had been so close to boundless riches and immortality, sat around Mortlake, indignant and invalid. He sold off the books, instruments, and artifacts that he'd treasured all his life in order to keep his children out of the poorhouse, and died at 81. But his influence loomed large. His image of a tall, spindly man with a long robe, tall hat, long white hair, and long white beard became the prototypical image for wizards to come, from Merlin to Gandalf to Dumbledore. John Dee is said to have been the inspiration for Prospero in Shakespeare's The Tempest, particularly since there was a legend that he had summoned a storm that sank the Spanish Armada. And remember those fears from European monarchs that he was spying for Elizabeth? Well, whether he was working for her then, he definitely had been a spy for Elizabeth the first time he went to Europe. He sent secret dispatches to the queen, signed with a very specific signature, taken it would seem from one of his secret alphabets. A lot of folks have tried over the years to work out what that signature meant. It looks a bit like some figures from the Enochian alphabet. Others believe that it was meant to symbolize the eyes of the queen. It looks like two eyes, after all, with a long seven hanging over them. I, I, seven. O, O, seven. Double O, seven. That is right. John Dee, the inventor of the British Empire, the seeker of ultimate wisdom, the basis for every famous wizard in Western fiction, was also the inspiration for James Bond. I know you're going to end up telling somebody that at a party. And when you do, tell them to listen to this show, for Christ's sake. So, what was Adamic anyway? Hebrew, Enochian, Sanskrit, Dutch, Gaelic, Greek, Spanish, Chinese, Egyptian, Phrygian. Everybody had an idea, and everybody had some reason they thought proved them right. But there was only one way to know for sure. You see, whatever an individual believed the true language to be, it was also understood to be the original language and the natural language. Meaning that, left their own devices without social or parental influence, a child should spontaneously learn to speak it. So there was a way to settle the question, once and for all. You just had to take a couple of babies and completely isolate them from all human contact for the first 10 or so years of their lives, and then go and see what came out of their mouths. Except that such an experiment was so ghastly and immoral, so unthinkably cold-hearted that no one would ever be cruel enough to try it. Aside from the approximately four people who did. That's next time. I know I said this would be a one-parter, but trust me, you'll want to hear this. 
That's next time, two weeks from now, on The Constant. Music for today's episode provided by Lee Rosevere, Blue Dot Sessions, and Epidemic Sound. You can find us at constantpodcast.com, where we've got playlists of favorite episodes, a merch store, and links to all of our social media handles, as well as a link to patreon.com slash theconstant, where you can sign up to financially support the making of this show and get access to our secret feed of bonus episodes. Give us a rating, a review, tell a friend, smash that like button, or whatever the hell I'm supposed to say. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, which in the true language means stinky onion, this has been The Constant. In the Torah, she's named Shaba. Boy, I'm not, I'm not, it's, David, you were you you warned me that I wasn't going to be able to do it, and you're right. <laughs>